Section 9 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 6, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter 3, Part 3. In the following November, Elizabeth, having been honored with an invitation to her sister's court, came to London in state. Her entrance and the dress of her retinue are thus quaintly recorded by a contemporary. The 28th of November came riding through Smithfield and Old Bailey, and through Fleet Street unto Somerset Place, my good Lady Elizabeth's Grace, the Queen's sister, with a great company of velvet coats and chains, her Grace's gentlemen, and after, a great company of her men, all in red coats, guarded with a broad guard of black velvet and cuts, or slashes. Elizabeth found herself treated with so many flattering marks of attention, by the nobility as well as the commons, whose darling she always had been, that she assembled a sort of court around her, and determined to settle herself in her town residence for the winter. She was, however, assailed by the council, at the insistence of her royal brother-in-law, with a renewal of the persecution she had undergone, in favor of her persevering suitor, Philibert of Savoy. The imperial ambassadors had been very urgent with the queen on the subject, and Elizabeth found that she had only been sent for in order to conclude the marriage treaty. The earnestness with which this was pushed on, immediately after the death of Courtney, naturally favors the idea that a positive contract of marriage had subsisted between that unfortunate nobleman and the princess, which had formed a legal impediment to her entering into any other matrimonial engagement during his life. She was, however, positive in her rejection of the Duke of Savoy's hand, though, as before, she protested her unalterable devotion to a maiden life, as the reason of her refusal. After this decision, she was compelled to give up the hope of spending a festive Christmas in London, and the Cottonian manuscript records her departure, after the brief sojourn of one week, in these words. On the third day of September came riding from her place, Somerset House, my Lady Elizabeth's Grace, from Somerset Place, down Fleet Street, and through Old Bailey and Smithfield, and so her Grace took her way towards Bishop Hatfield. Such was the disgust that Elizabeth had conceived during her late visit to court, or the apprehensions that had been excited by the intimation used by the Spanish party, that she appears to have contemplated the very impolitic step of secretly withdrawing from the realm that was so soon to become her own and taking refuge in France. Henry II had never ceased urging her by his wily agent, Noel, to accept an asylum in his court, doubtless with the intention of securing the only person who, in the event of Queen Mary's death, would stand between his daughter-in-law and the crown of England. Noel had, however, interfered in so unseemly a manner in the intrigues and plots that agitated England that he had been recalled and superseded in his office by his brother, the Bishop of Auch, a man of better principles, and who scrupled to become a party in the iniquitous scheme of deluding a young and inexperienced princess to her own ruin. With equal kindness and sincerity, this worthy ecclesiastic told the Countess of Sussex, when she came to him secretly in disguise, to ask his assistance in conveying the Lady Elizabeth to France. 
that it was an unwise project and that he would advise the princess to take example by the conduct of her sister who if she had listened to the counsels of those who would have persuaded her to take refuge with the emperor would still have remained in exile the countess returned again to him on the same errand and he then plainly told her that if ever elizabeth hoped to ascend the throne of england she must never leave the realm a few years later he declared that elizabeth was indebted to him for her crown whatever might be the cloud that had darkened the prospects of the princess at the period when she had cherished intentions so fatal to her own interests it quickly disappeared and on the twenty fifth of february fifteen fifty seven she came from her house at hatfield to london attended by a noble company of lords and gentlemen to do her duty to the queen and rested at somerset house till the twenty eighth when she repaired to her majesty at whitehall with many lords and ladies again one morning in march the lady elizabeth took her horse and rode to the palace of sheen with a goodly company of lords ladies knights and gentlemen these visits were probably on account of the return of philip of spain which restored the queen to unwonted cheerfulness for a time and caused a brief interval of gaiety in the lugubrious court we are indebted to the lively pen of giovanni michel the venetian ambassador for the following graphic sketch of the person and character of elizabeth at this interesting period of her life milady elizabeth says he is a lady of great elegance both of body and mind though her face may be called pleasing rather than beautiful she is tall and well made her complexion fine though rather sallow her bloom must have been prematurely faded by sickness and anxiety for elizabeth could not have been more than three-and-twenty at this period her eyes but above all her hands which she takes care not to conceal are of superior beauty in her knowledge of the greek and italian languages she surpasses the queen and takes so much pleasure in the latter that she will converse with italians in no other tongue her wit and understanding are admirable as she has proved by her conduct in the midst of suspicion and danger when she concealed her religion and comported herself like a good catholic catherine parr and lady jane grey made no such compromise with conscience indeed this dissimulation on the part of elizabeth appears like a practical illustration of the text the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light michelle proceeds to describe elizabeth as proud and dignified in her manners for though she is well aware what sort of a mother she had she is also aware that this mother of hers was united to the king in wedlock with the sanction of the holy church and the concurrence of the primate of the realm this remark is important as it proves that the marriage of anne boleyn was considered legal by the representative of the catholic republic of venice however he goes on to say the queen though she hates her most sincerely yet treats her in public with every outward sign of affection and regard and never converses with her but on pleasing and agreeable subjects a proof by the by that mary neither annoyed her sister by talking at her nor endeavoured to irritate her by introducing the elements of strife into their personal discussions when they were together in this the queen at least behaved with the courtesy of a gentlewoman michelle adds 
that the princess had contrived to ingratiate herself with the king of spain through whose influence the queen was prevented from having her declared illegitimate as she had it in her power to do by an act of parliament which would exclude her from the throne it is believed continues he that but for this interference of the king the queen would without remorse chastise her in the severest manner for whatever plots against the queen are discovered my lady elizabeth or some of her people are always sure to be mentioned among the persons concerned in them michelle tells us moreover that elizabeth would exceed her income and incur large debts if she did not prudently to avoid increasing the jealousy of the queen limit her household and followers for continues he there is not a lord or gentleman in the realm who has not sought to place himself or a brother or son in her service her expenses are naturally increased by her endeavors to maintain her popularity although she opposes her poverty as an excuse for avoiding the proposed enlargements of her establishment this plea answered another purpose by exciting the sympathy of her people and their indignation that the heiress of the crown should suffer from straitened finances elizabeth was nevertheless in the enjoyment of the income her father had provided for her maintenance three thousand pounds a year equal to twelve thousand per annum of the present currency and presently the same allowance which mary had before her extension to the crown she is pursues michelle to appearance at liberty in her country residence twelve miles from london but really surrounded by spies and shut in with guards so that no one comes or goes and nothing is spoken or done without the queen's knowledge such is the testimony of the venetian ambassador of elizabeth's position in her sister's court but it should be remembered that he is the same man who had intrigued with the conspirators to supply them with arms and that his information is avowedly only hearsay evidence after this it may not be amiss to enrich these pages with the account given by an english contemporary of one of the pageants that was devised for her pleasure by the courteous dragon by whom the captive princess was guarded in her own fair mansion of hatfield and other dominions adjacent in april the same year fifteen fifty seven she was escorted from hatfield to enfield chase by a retinue of twelve ladies clothed in white satin on ambling palfreys and twenty yeomen in green all on horseback that her grace might hunt the hart at entering the chase or forest she was met by fifty archers in scarlet boots and yellow caps armed with gilded bows one of whom presented her a silver-headed arrow winged with peacock feathers sir thomas pope had the devising of this show at the close of the sport her grace was gratified with the privilege of cutting the buck's throat a compliment of which elizabeth who delighted in bear baitings and other savage amusements of those semi-barbarous days was not unlikely to avail herself when her sister queen mary visited her at hatfield elizabeth adorned her great state chamber for her majesty's reception with a sumptuous suit of tapestry representing the siege of antioch and after supper a play was performed by the choir boys of st paul's when it was over one of the children sang and was accompanied on the virginals by no meaner musician than the princess elizabeth herself the account of elizabeth's visit to the queen at richmond and the splendid banquet and pageant which mary with the assistance of sir thomas pope 
with whom her majesty was long in consultation on the subject devised for the entertainment of her sister has been described in the life of queen mary the pleasant and sisterly intercourse which was for a brief time established between these royal ladies was destined to be once more interrupted by the pertinacious interference of king philip in favor of his friend's matrimonial suit for elizabeth her hand was probably the reward with which that monarch had promised to guarantee his brave friend for his good services at st quentin but the gallant savoyard found it was easier to win a battle in the field under every disadvantage than to conquer the determination of an obdurate lady love elizabeth would not be disposed of in marriage to please any one and as she made her refusal a matter of conscience the queen ceased to importune her on the subject philip as we have seen endeavoured to compel his reluctant wife to interpose her authority to force elizabeth to fulfil the engagement he had made for her and mary proved that she had on occasion a will of her own as well as her sister in short the ladies made common cause and quietly resisted his authority he had sent his two noble kinswomen the duchesses of parma and lorraine to persuade elizabeth to comply with his desire and to convey her to the continent as the bride-elect of his friend but elizabeth by her sister's advice declined receiving these fair envoys and they were compelled to return without fulfilling the object of their mission meantime elizabeth received several overtures from the ambassador of the great gustavus vasa king of sweden who was desirous of obtaining her in marriage for his eldest son prince eric she declined listening to this proposal because it was not made to her through the medium of the queen her sister the ambassador told her in reply that the king of sweden his master as a gentleman and a man of honor thought it most proper to make the first application to herself in order to ascertain whether it would be agreeable to her to enter into such an alliance and if she signified her consent he would then as a king propose it in due form to her majesty this delicacy of feeling was in unison with the chivalric character of gustavus vasa who having delivered his country from a foreign yoke had achieved the reformation of her church without persecution or bloodshed and regarding elizabeth as a protestant princess who was suffering for conscience sake was nobly desirous of making her his daughter-in-law elizabeth however who had previously rejected the heir of his neighbor christian of denmark desired the swedish envoy to inform his master that she could not listen to any proposals of the kind that were not conveyed to her through the queen's authority and at the same time declared that if left to her own free will she would always prefer a maiden life this affair reaching her majesty's ears she sent for sir thomas pope to court and having received from him a full account of this secret transaction she expressed herself well pleased with the wise and dutiful conduct of elizabeth and directed him to write a letter to her expressive of her approbation when sir thomas pope returned to hatfield mary commanded him to repeat her commendations to the princess and to inform her that an official communication had now been made to her from the king of sweden touching the match with his son on which she desired sir thomas to ascertain her sister's sentiments from her own lips and to communicate how her grace stood affected in this matter and also to marriage in general 
Sir Thomas Pope, in compliance with this injunction, made the following report of what passed between himself and Elizabeth on the subject. First, after I had declared to her grace how well the Queen's Majesty liked of her prudent and honourable answer made to the same messenger, from the King of Sweden, I then opened, unto her grace, the effects of the said messenger's credence, which after her grace had heard, I said that the Queen's Highness had sent me to her grace, not only to declare the same, but also to understand how her grace liked the said motion, whereunto, after a little pause, her grace answered in form following. Master Pope, I require you, after my most humble commendations unto the Queen's Majesty, to render unto the same like thanks, that it pleased her highness of her goodness, to conceive so well of my answer, made to the said messenger, and herewithal of her princely commendation, with such speed to command you by your letters, to signify the same unto me, who before remain wonderfully perplexed, fearing that her majesty might mistake the same, for which her goodness I acknowledge myself, bound to honour, serve, love and obey her highness during my life, requiring you also to say unto her majesty, that in the king, my brother's time, there was offered me a very honourable marriage or two, and ambassadors sent to treat with me touching the same, whereunto I made my humble suit unto his highness, as some of honour yet living can be testimonies, that it would like the same, King Edward, to give me leave with his grace's favour, to remain in that estate I was, which of all others best please me, and in good faith, I pray you say unto her highness, I am even at this present of the same mind, and so intend to continue with her majesty's favour, assuring her highness I so well like this state, as I persuade myself there is not any kind of life comparable to it and as concerning my liking the motion made by the said messenger, I beseech you say unto her majesty, that to my remembrance I never heard of his master before this time, and that I so well like both the message and the messenger, as I shall most humbly pray God, upon my knees, that from henceforth I may never hear of the one nor the other. Not the most civil way in the world, it must be owned, of dismissing a remarkably civil offer, but Elizabeth gives her reason, in a manner artfully calculated to ingratiate herself with her royal sister. And were there nothing else, pursues she, to move me to mislike the motion, other than that his master would attempt the same, without making the queen's majesty privy thereunto, it were cause sufficient. And when her grace had thus ended, resumed Sir Thomas Pope in conclusion, I was so bold as of myself, to say unto her grace, her pardon first required, that I thought few or none would believe, but her grace would be right well contented to marry, so there were some honourable marriage offered her, by the queen's highness, or with her majesty's assent. Whereunto her grace answered, What I shall do hereafter I know not, but I assure you, upon my truth and fidelity, and as God be merciful unto me, I am not at this time otherwise minded than I have declared unto you. No, though I were offered the greatest prince in all Europe. Sir Thomas Pope adds his own opinion of these protestations in the following sly comment. And yet per case, or perhaps, the Queen's Majesty may conceive this rather to proceed from a maidenly shamefacedness than upon any such certain determination. This important letter is among the Harleian manuscripts, and is endorsed, the Lady Elizabeth, 
her grace's answer made at hatfield the twenty sixth of april fifteen fifty eight to sir t pope knight being sent from the queen's majesty to understand how her grace liked the motion of marriage made by the king-elect of switherland's messenger it affords unquestionable proof that elizabeth was allowed full liberty to decide for herself as to her acceptance or rejection of this protestant suitor for her hand her brother-in-law king philip not being so much as consulted on the subject camden asserts that after philip had given up the attempt of forcing her to wed his friend philibert of savoy he would fain have made up a marriage between her and his own son don carlos who was then a boy of sixteen but he finally when he became a widower offered himself to her acceptance instead of his heir elizabeth was so fortunate as to escape any implication in stafford's rebellion but among the spaniards a report was circulated that her hand was destined to reward the earl of westmoreland by whom the insurrection was quelled there were also rumors of an engagement between her and the earl of arundel these are mentioned in gonzales she is always called madame isabel in contemporary spanish memoirs though much has been asserted to the contrary the evidences of history prove that elizabeth was on amicable terms with queen mary at the time of her death and for some months previous to that event on the ninth of november the count de feria one of philip's most confidential counsellors brought the dying queen a letter from her absent consort who already embarrassed in a war with france and dreading the possibility of the queen of scots being placed on the throne requested mary to declare elizabeth her successor the queen had anticipated his desire by her previous appointment of elizabeth from whom she however exacted a profession of her adherence to the catholic creed elizabeth complained that the queen should doubt the sincerity of her faith and if we may credit the duchess of feria added that she prayed god that the earth might open and swallow her alive if she were not a true roman catholic although elizabeth never scrupled through her life to sacrifice truth to expediency it is difficult to believe that any one could to secure a temporal advantage utter so awful a perjury she afterwards told count feria that she acknowledged the real presence in the sacrament at least so the count affirmed in a letter he wrote to philip the second the day before queen mary died she likewise assured the lord lamar of her sincerity in this belief and added that she did now and then pray to the virgin mary stripe who quotes the documents in support of these words of elizabeth offers no contradiction to them edwin sandys in a letter to bollinger gives a very different report of the communication which passed between the royal sisters mary not long before her death says he sent two members of her council to her sister elizabeth and commanded them to let her know that it was her intention to bequeath to her the royal crown together with the dignity that she was then in possession of by right of inheritance in return however for this great favor conferred upon her she required of her three things first that she would not change her privy council secondly that she would make no alteration in religion and thirdly that she would discharge her debts and satisfy her creditors elizabeth replied in these terms i am very sorry to hear of the queen's illness 
but there is no reason why i should thank her for her intention of giving me the crown of this realm for she has neither the power of bestowing it upon me nor can i lawfully be deprived of it since it is my peculiar and hereditary right with respect to the council i think myself as much at liberty to choose my counsellors as she was to choose hers as to religion i promise thus much that i will not change it provided only that it can be proved by the word of god which shall be the only foundation and rule of my religion lastly in requiring the payment of her debts she seems to me to require nothing more than what is just and i will take care that they shall be paid as far as may lie in my power such is the contradictory evidence given by two contemporaries one of whom jane dormer afterwards duchess of feria certainly had the surest means of information as to the real state of the case as she was one of the most trusted of queen mary's ladies-in-waiting and her subsequent marriage to the spanish ambassador the conde de feria tended to enlighten her still more on the transactions between the dying queen and the princess dr sandys was not in england at the time and merely quotes the statement of a nameless correspondent as to the affairs in england the lofty tone of elizabeth's reply suited not the deep dissimulation of her character and appears inconsistent with the fact that she was at that time in all outward observances a member of the church of rome she continued to attend the mass and all other catholic observances a full month after her sister's death until she had clearly ascertained that the protestant party was the most numerous and likely to obtain the ascendancy if she therefore judged that degree of caution necessary after the sovereign authority was in her own hands was it likely that she would declare her own opinion while the catholics who surrounded the dying bed of mary were exercising the whole power of the crown her answer was probably comprised in language sufficiently mystified to conceal her real intentions from mary and her counsellors on the tenth of november count feria in obedience to the directions of his royal master went to pay his compliments to the princess and to offer her the assurances of don philip's friendship and good will elizabeth was then at the house of lord clinton about thirteen miles from london there feria sought and obtained an interview with her which forms an important episode in the early personal annals of this great sovereign the particulars are related by feria himself in a confidential letter to philip he says the princess received him well though not so cordially as on former occasions he supped with her and lady clinton and after supper opened the discourse according to the instructions he had received from the king his master the princess had three of her ladies in attendance but she told the count they understood no other language than english so he might speak before them he replied that he should be well pleased if the whole world heard what he had to say elizabeth expressed herself as much gratified by the count's visit and the obliging message he had brought from his sovereign of whom she spoke in friendly terms and acknowledged that she had been under some obligations to him when she was in prison but when the count endeavoured to persuade her that she was indebted for the recognition of her right to the royal succession neither to queen mary or her council but solely to don philip she exhibited some degree of incredulity in the same conference elizabeth complained that she had never been given more than three thousand pounds of maintenance and that she knew the king had received large sums of money 
the count contradicted this because he knew it to be a fact that queen mary had once given her seven thousand pounds and some jewels of great value to relieve her from debts in which she had involved herself in consequence of indulging in some expensive entertainments in the way of ballets she then observed that philip had tried hard to induce her to enter into a matrimonial alliance with the duke of savoy but that she knew how much favor the queen had lost by marrying a foreigner the count probably felt the incivility of this remark but only replied carelessly in general terms here the details of the conversation end and feria proceeds to communicate his own opinions of the princess it appears to me says he that she is a woman of extreme vanity but acute she seems greatly to admire her father's system of government i fear much that in religion she will not go right as she seems inclined to favor men who are supposed to be heretics and they tell me the ladies who are about her are all so she appears highly indignant at the things that had been done against her during her sister's reign she is much attached to the people and is very confident that they are all on her side which is indeed true in fact she says it is they that have placed her in the position she at present holds as the declared successor to the crown on this point elizabeth with great spirit refused to acknowledge that she was under any obligation either to the king of spain his council or even the nobles of england though she said that they had all pledged themselves to remain faithful to her indeed concludes the count there is not a heretic or traitor in all the realm who has not started as if from the grave to seek her and offer her their homage two or three days before her death queen mary sent jane dormer to deliver the crown jewels to elizabeth together with her dying requests to that princess first that she would be good to her servants secondly that she would repay the sums of money that had been lent on privy seals and lastly that she would continue the church as she had re-established it philip had directed his envoy to add to these jewels a valuable casket of his own which he had left at whitehall and which elizabeth had always greatly admired in memory of the various civilities this monarch had shown to elizabeth she always kept his portrait in her bedchamber even after they became deadly political foes during the last few days of mary's life hatfield became the resort of the time-serving courtiers who sought to worship elizabeth as the rising sun the conde de feria readily penetrated the secret of those who were destined to hold a distinguished place in her councils and predicted that cecil would be her principal secretary she did not conceal her dislike of her kinsman cardinal pole then on his deathbed he had never she said paid her any attention and had caused her great annoyance there is in letty a long controversial dialogue between elizabeth and him in which the princess appears to have the best of the argument but however widely he might differ with her on theological subjects he always treated her with the respect due to her elevated rank and opposed the murderous policy of her determined foe gardiner he wrote to her in his last illness requesting her to give credit to what the dean of worcester would say in his behalf not doubting but his explanations would be satisfactory but her pleasure or displeasure was of little moment to him in that hour for the sands in the waning glass of life ebbed with him scarcely less quickly than with his departing sovereign and friend queen mary 
she died on the 17th of November, he on the 18th. Reports of the death of Mary were certainly circulated some hour before it took place, and Sir Nicholas Throckmorton, who was secretly employed by Elizabeth to give her the earliest possible intelligence of that event, rode off at fiery speed to Hatfield to communicate the tidings. The caution of Elizabeth taught her that it was dangerous to take any steps toward her own recognition till she could ascertain, to a certainty, the truth of a report that might only have been devised to betray her into some act that might be construed into treason. She bade Throckmorton hasten to the palace and request one of the ladies of the bedchamber, who was in her confidence, if the queen were really dead, to send her as a token, the black enameled ring which her majesty wore night and day. The circumstances are quaintly versified in the precious Throckmorton metrical chronicle of the life of Sir Nicholas Throckmorton. Then I, who was misliked of the time, obscurely sought to live scant seen at all, so far was I from seeking up to climb, as that I thought it well to scape a fall. Elizabeth I visited by stealth, as one who wished her quietness with health. Repairing off to Hatfield, where she lay, my duty not to slack that I did owe, the queen fell very sick as we heard say, the truth whereof her sister ought to know, that her none might of malice undermine, a secret means herself did quickly find. She said, since not exceedeth woman's fear, who still do dread some baits of subtlety. Sir Nicholas, know a ring my sister wears, enameled black, a pledge of loyalty, the which the king of Spain in spousals gave. If aught fall out amiss, tis that I crave. But hark, ope not your lips to any one, in hope as to obtain of courtesy, unless you know my sister first be gone, for grudging minds will soon coin treachery. So shall thyself be safe and us be sure, who takes no hurt shall need no care of cure. Her dying day shall thee such credit get, that all will forward be to pleasure thee, and none at all shall seek thy suit to let, or hinder, but go and come, and look here to find me. Thence to court I galloped in post, where, when I came, the queen gave up the ghost. The ring received, my brethren, which lay in London town with me, to Hatfield went, and as we rode, there met us by the way, an old acquaintance, hoping advancement, a sugared bait, that brought us to our bane, but chiefly me, who therewithal was tain. I egged them on with promise of reward, I thought if neither credit nor some gain, fell to their share, the world went very hard, yet reckoned I without mine host in vain. When to the court I and my brother came, my news was stale, but yet she knew them true, but see how crossly things began to frame. The cardinal died, whose death my friends may rue, for then Lord Grey and I were sent, in hope, to find some writings to or from the Pope. While Throckmorton was on his road back to London, Mary expired, and ere he could return with the ring, to satisfy Elizabeth of the truth of that event, which busy rumor had antedated, a deputation from the late Queen's Council had already arrived at Hatfield, to apprise her of the demise of her sister, and to offer their homage to her as their rightful sovereign. Though well prepared for the intelligence, she appeared at first amazed and overpowered at what she heard, and, drawing a deep respiration, she sank upon her knees and exclaimed, O Domino, factum est iliud, et est mirable in oculos nostri. 
it is the lord's doing it is marvellous in our eyes which says our authority sir robert naunton we find to this day on the stamp of her gold with this on her silver posui dominum adutorum meum i have chosen god for my helper eight and twenty years afterwards elizabeth in a conversation with the envoys of france castanof and Belliver, spoke of the tears which she had shed on the death of her sister mary but she is the only person by whom they were ever recorded end of section nine